Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a podcast from the Smart Material Collective, made by nerds, funded by the listeners. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at your question. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Real Talk, the podcast about all things materials. I'm your host, material scientist Anna Pajajski. In this episode, I talk to professional gemologist Julia Griffith about diamond. Julia started studying gemology eight years ago at the School of Drawing in Birmingham. And I started by asking her what got her hooked on gems. I just fell in love with the subject. Hadn't heard of it before, because gemology, what? Um, but while looking into jewellery making, actually, discovered it and just fell in love with the logic of it and also the aesthetics and the opinions. And I've never met such a passionate bunch of people. And uh, for the last five years, I was a tutor at the Gemological Association of Great Britain to hopefully inspire passion in other budding gemologists and for the last year I've been traveling and now I'm looking to relocate to Florida to specialize in fancy colored diamonds. Amazing which brings us on to our material of the pod Mm -hmm. which is diamond. So let's define for the listeners what is diamond first of all. So diamond is a mineral It is made of pure carbon, and it's actually the only gemstone that we have that is just one element. Uh, It's an extremely precious gemstone, has a number of properties which make it the ultimate gemstone, as it's uh, known to to be. And uh, when it comes to actually what the material is, so it's just a very highly concentrated carbon, uh, the strongest bonds in the world, which are known as covalent bonds, which give us the properties of its hardness and its thermal conductivity and uh, a number of the properties which we prize it for in the gem industry as well as uh, the industrial industry as well. Indeed. I read a fun fact about diamond, Mm -hmm. the structure of it specifically that you mentioned, which is that it's the material that has the greatest number of atoms per unit volume of any material that we know. Well, that's fantastic. Which is cool. Yeah, I'm not surprised, actually, because they are so dense. Um, so that's fantastic. Do you know, I read a fun fact recently as tell well. Me, tell me, That actually, they theorise that diamond is the first mineral to have ever been formed. 
No way. Mm -hmm. Which makes sense if you think about it, because carbon, you know, being quite a light element, a lot of the heavier elements wouldn't have even been formed yet. Mm. You've got all that pressure and heat inside stars. So actually they think that, yeah, the diamond, first mineral in the universe. Wow, that's yeah. really, really cool. <laughs> so you mentioned that diamond is only made of carbon atoms. Yes. But. So, <laughs> so uh, it's absolutely true that diamonds are just made of carbon. However, they, uh, there are impurities inside of a lot of diamonds, uh, the most common impurity being nitrogen. But I mean less than, you know, 0.2%. Uh, but that is what can actually turn our diamonds different colours. So mm -hmm. nitrogen is actually uh, responsible for yellow coloration in diamonds and boron is blue and because diamonds come in every colour. And so actually, um, yes, but also no, <laughs> because of impurities. Nice. And um, I read that you can have diamonds that are theoretically anyway, completely only carbon. But then if there's an atom missing in the structure or if there's an extra atom in the structure or there's little kind of mistakes in the repeating structure of the atoms, then that can cause coloration as well. So I think like, is it red and pink and those kinds yeah, of colours? Yeah, exactly. So that's plastic deformation. Nice. Uh, so a dislocation of the crystal lattice in the structure. Uh, we believe that's what causes pink and red and brown. Um, so you're absolutely right. And if there's a vacancy, which you mentioned, that is uh, usually due to radiation. So whether it was um, subjected to gamma radiation when it was in the Earth, um, that will actually turn a diamond green. Wow. OK, so how do diamonds form? So diamonds uh, form in the mantle of the Earth. They form in the lithosphere. So um, they can't just form or we don't believe them to form just anywhere under the crust. They actually form under the thickest, densest part of continental crust, known as cratons. And it's not just any craton. The cratons we're actually focusing on are uh, the oldest ones at 2.5 billion years old. So really thick areas of the continental crust, approximately 80 kilometres in thickness. So uh, underneath the crust, you're looking at maybe 150 kilometres down to 200 kilometres down. Uh, carbon, which exists in this area, is subject to very high temperatures, very high pressures. Uh, the temperatures required are about 900 to 1300 degrees centigrade, roughly. And then uh, pressures, you're looking at about 45,000 times atmospheric pressure. Whoa. So 45 to 65 kilobars. Um, so... Extreme pressure yeah. and very high temperatures. And it's the uh, cratonic areas which we believe actually then give this perfect area underneath to, for them to form. Uh, if you don't have these conditions, you're actually going to get polymorphs of diamonds or allotropes of diamonds form. So that would be graphite, which forms, again, deep down under the crust, but at lesser temperatures and lesser pressures. Okay, and so it's the it's the combination of temperature and pressure that forces the atoms to bond together in certain ways. Exactly. So with diamonds, once they form really deep down in the earth, and actually there have been studies that suggest that diamonds can form even deeper than that, um, but once they've formed, they 
need to come to the surface if we're going to use them. You know, we need to uh, get to them. And so they need to come to the surface. And they come to the surface in uh, volcanic eruptions. Now, the volcanic eruptions uh, need to move fast because otherwise, due to the fact that these carbon atoms would rather be in the formation of graphite, so that's, you know, completely different types of bonds, van der Waals, as well as covalent, basically, it's got to move fast, otherwise it risks conversion. Okay. So it's very important that the diamonds move fast. It takes about three hours, they suspect, for it to move from 150 kilometres down to a safe zone, if you like, where they can cool down in the Earth's crust. So once you've got the diamonds that have come up through the volcanic eruption, which is a very volatile situation, actually some of the diamonds can be altered or disappear during that time, they then come up in a volcanic eruption, which could break the surface, and actually you can find diamonds within the lava flows. Uh, otherwise, they can get stuck within the earth's crust, within the pipe, or even within dikes and sills, so kind of walls and big flat spaces within, within the cracks of the earth's crust. How we get to them, uh, the first diamonds, i uh, going to touch a bit on history here, the first diamonds that humans came across were actually found in rivers. And uh, for that reason, we actually at one point thought that maybe their formation was due to water. Like, you know, it's the only place we found them. In fact, for the first two and a half thousand years of having diamonds and using diamonds, we only found them in riverbeds, and these are known as alluvial deposits. Now, those were weathered from the volcanic areas. So but over millions of years, we've had millions of years, haven't we? So millions of years, 60 million years later, we find them in the rivers and the seas and in streams and things. So yes, we've mined these areas for thousands of years now. And it's actually only been in the last 150 years that we've actively mined volcanoes or volcanic pipes because we didn't know that that's where they came from until South Africa discoveries in 1867. So before 1867, we never really used diamonds or... We did use diamonds, but where they were only found from alluvial deposits, the diamonds that we were finding were really high gem quality diamonds. Okay. So uh, the first deposits were found in India, so 1800 BC, um, and also some small deposits in Borneo. Uh, so at that time, diamonds were only reserved for maharajas, warriors, kings, as they drifted over towards the West. And, you know, we actually had these beautiful specimens. No other diamond deposits were found until Brazil, which wasn't until 1525, so like 2,000 years later. And then after Brazil actually came South Africa. And South Africa changed everything because once we realised that they came from volcanoes, we were suddenly looking for diamond deposits everywhere. And it opened up the fact that you were getting a lot more diamonds of a lot more different qualities. And in regards to, I think, where your question was aiming for, that actually gave us our industrial diamonds. So our lower quality or polycrystalline diamonds, which are now used and massively depended on throughout the whole industry. So really, before 1867, that whole industry didn't really exist. I think our abrasives were mainly from corundum, so sapphires and... And I guess that coincides with the Industrial Revolution and industrialization of all sorts of other materials. It really would. It really would. And then because of then all the, um, even in the wars that came in the early 1900s and then towards the, uh, the Second World War, so the, towards the mid-1900s, that's also when uh, loads of science really came into it to try and then synthesise these materials so we could get even more and feed it even more. So, yeah, it changed an awful lot. 
as well as giving us from the from the jury perspective, uh, it didn't just give us nice big specimens. It also gave us much smaller diamonds. So like the melee diamonds, as we call them, the really tiny ones that we make up lots of jewelry with, uh, that didn't happen before then. And it changed, sorry, I'm going to keep going because it changed even more than that because actually before um, the finds in South Africa and before this whole extra resource was opened up to us, uh, we preserved diamonds very much so in regards to their cutting. The cutting was uh, very bulky at the time because the material was so precious. Once the uh, primary deposits were found from volcanoes, that completely changed the way that people look at the material and how people cut the material and how they could really utilise the beauty. So because the market was now kind of flooded with more supply of materials, you could start cutting diamonds so that they were attractive as opposed to preserving as much of the material as possible because it was too precious. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Mm -hmm. So... That was sort of around the turn of the 20th century, did you say, that kind of... Yeah, so 1867 was when the very first one was found, but the actual diamond rush didn't start until the 70s. Then, like De Beers, they actually formed a few years later. Um, And so, yeah, everything was really kicking off at that time. And I would say it was the turn of the 19th century that the ideal cut, round, brilliant diamond uh, really came into its very strict ideals that it is today. Yeah, so De Beers is a name in diamonds that is kind of a household name. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did they discover those first diamonds? No. So um, the the very first diamond actually uh, was discovered by a shepherd boy. His name was Aramis Jacob. And he was was young, like 16. And... um, he found it and he took it home and I think he gave it to his little sister. And it wasn't until a travelling uh, dealer, actually, I think he was into minerals, kind of came around and saw it and said, you know, I'll, I'll buy that from you. And then it was p- trying to prove that it was a diamond. That took a really long time because people were like, no, it's not. Or it was planted there. It's a topaz. Like, what you it's like someone saying, like, oh, I've just found a diamond in London. I swear it came from the Thames. I swear. <laughs> you know, people just wouldn't believe it. So the founder of De Beers, his name was Cecil Rhodes, and he uh, went over, uh, so he went over to these finds uh, near the river, so there was the Orange River, I believe, in South Africa, and he actually was the water provider for a lot of the miners. That's actually what he started doing. Okay. And then as time continued, he actually started buying one plot, and then another plot, and another plot, and eventually owned pretty much a huge operation in uh, these first deposits in South Africa. Now, De Beers, the name De Beers, because it's not anything to do with Cecil Rhodes, is it, if you look at the names, De Beers was actually the name of the farm that he purchased, which is where some of the first diamonds were from. Because a lot of people might still believe that there's a monopoly within the diamond industry. That's no longer true, because uh, in the 1900s, we've had some really big finds in Russia and Canada. So it's no longer true. But at one point, it was true. So De Beers had a huge um, share of the rough diamonds and then the cut diamonds in the world. They actually were limiting some of the diamonds that were coming out. I've actually seen an original book, actually, of all the diamonds coming from South Africa and being sold, you know. So they started limiting supply somewhat. But then, especially because you had uh, the World Wars as well, you then had just after a challenge, which was how do we increase demand for these stones? What can we do? What actually De Beers as a company did was to market diamonds 
And it was actually due to one woman who was working for their marketing, not their direct marketing team, but, um, you know, the people that would come up for the slogans. And uh, this lady was called Frances Geraghty. And in 1947, she actually gave to the rest of her team the four famous words, a diamond is forever. And it still is completely uh, relevant today. People still think of it. You know, it was in the James Bond film and in the song. And, you know, um, yeah, it was a fantastic slogan. And actually one that is completely justifiable when we talk about the material, because a diamond is forever, unless you want to take a hammer to it. (laughs) But even those shards and those remains will still last forever. This Mm. material is absolutely phenomenal. There's no other material like it. So she was actually very smart when she came up with uh, those four little words. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustoleum. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So one of the other aspects of diamonds that lots of people will be aware of is they're slightly more controversial, shall we say, side. The ethics. (laughs) The ethics of diamonds. Yeah. Um, What's the thinking around that today? Sort of what's the situation? Yeah, my opinion on it is that it's a real shame that rather than helping countries and communities rebuild, is that actually the choice is to boycott it entirely. So I think that's a real shame because they still have a product that's really desirable. And to boycott it completely and to turn away from it completely and look towards other alternatives such as synthetic diamonds, they're charging them an awful lot of money for something that isn't actually rare. Uh, It's still a great material because it's still a diamond, but it's not actually rare. 
I actually spoke to someone recently. I met a diamond cutter and he actually worked in Sierra Leone for about 10 years. And he was there just as the civil war actually started at the early 90s. And it was his job, actually, to get the Americans out of the country. And he has such a love for this country. You know, it's a beautiful place, beautiful people. And, you know, he finds it extremely sad that uh, the world kind of turns their back. When it comes to... Oh, no, you go. No, no, no. All I was going to say is kind of just to, to summarise what you were saying. So you would prefer to see support given to ethical mining practices. Yes, absolutely. Now, uh, you mentioned earlier the Kimberley process. Now, this is something uh, which, on the face of it, will ensure people that they have a conflict-free diamond. And a conflict-free diamond is one that's you know, not classed as a blood diamond, which are ones that fund uh, wars. Now, um, the Kimberley process does ensure that diamonds... Um, that are pulled from the ground have not come from such countries. And basically there's just paperwork and they get put in sealed tins and transported from country to country, where actually they can be emptied out and mixed with other diamonds and recertificated. So actually I'm not quite sure how foolproof it is. But if you want to talk about ethics, you can't ignore um, human right practices, um, age limitations, although different cultures have different opinions on that. Um, but, you know, fair pay, women's rights, you can't ignore these parts of it either. And I've got to say that the Kimberley process does not uh, engage that in regards to its practices. Interesting. Yeah. Are there any other processes or kind of approaches that are trying to address these other ethical issues? Yes. In fact, um, so you've got a huge... Um, Oh, no, what's the foundation called? Is it a foundation? It's a big group of mining companies, and they are brilliant. They have fair mining practices, um, great education, great pay systems for all their staff. They also do training on gem cutting so that rather than sending it east, they can cut more and actually have a trade and have um, skill base within the country that they're in. And actually... They're amazing, you know, they're absolutely amazing and I hope more companies join it. But that actually covers a huge part of the market. So we don't have to worry as much as people think we do. Actually, a lot of people are really good. Uh, you've also got uh, De Beers actually have their Forever Mark uh, brand, which are fully traceable diamonds from mine to market. You have the Canadian Mines these are, again, fully traceable diamonds from mine to market. So absolutely, there are uh, diamonds that are out there on the market that are fully, you know, as ethical as, as it can be. So, yeah, definitely. And hopefully they'll continue to get better. Like, yeah, for sure. That's great news. <laughs> yeah. Very happy to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you bought some gems to show me. I did, yeah. Shall we take a little look? Sure. What would you like to see? I already gave you a little sneak peek. Well, I would like to have a little look at the first gem that you said that you ever cut. Yes. Now, this isn't a diamond, unfortunately. This is a topaz. Uh, very, very different to diamond. I wouldn't be able to cut a diamond. That's a very special skill. But this is a faceted, round, brilliant topaz, my first ever cut gem. It's awesome. It's really beautiful. It's like your stereotypical diamond shape, but almost mm -hmm. a centimetre wide. If this was a diamond, it would be 
outrageously expensive. It probably <laughs> would imagine. be quite pricey, yeah. When diamonds are priced, there is no other gem material that is scrutinized as much as a diamond. You can have one tiniest flaw, which I would struggle to see with magnification, and that can drastically affect its price. And would a flaw be like a wrong angle or a little nick in it? Or... Oh, no. By flaw, just then I was mainly talking about inclusions. So they can be little crystals or maybe tiny fractures. Uh, sometimes you get big fractures, and obviously that will massively affect the price. Um, in regards to cutting, though, you're quite right. Uh, diamonds have the strictest angles applied to them for round brilliance, particularly, uh, to make sure that that they give out the best light reflections they can, so fire and brilliance. And if they are cut outside these proportions, they do not look as attractive. So, yes, they will not be as expensive. And are those angles and faces related to the material themselves? I guess the point, what I'm trying to get at is when you cut a diamond, because diamond is the hardest material, you can only cut a diamond with another diamond or you have to find its weak point, right? Mm. So how do, how do you actually cut diamonds? So with diamonds, so there is a challenge. Um, so much of the challenge, actually, that diamonds weren't cut until uh, the 14th century. We couldn't even come up with a way to cut them because uh, they're so hard. And you're quite right, only diamonds can scratch or cut a diamond. Now, uh, basically, we use the harder directions of diamond, which are known directions. We use the harder directions to polish the softer directions. And we do this with the use of diamond dust. So if there's lots of diamond dust on a polishing wheel, there is the assumption, and it's true, that there'll be lots of hardest directions within this dust face up, ready to polish whatever gets put on. So then you will angle the stone, basically, in its softer directions to try and basically polish it away. You can't use the hardest direction on, you know, to polish because actually that will cause too much friction and the stone will burn or you get this weird lizard effect, lizard skin effect, sorry. Uh, and also you need to avoid the cleavage directions. So you know about cleavage? Yes, but let's tell the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> this is always a uh, funny, there's always so many innuendos in gemology. <laughs> tell us about it. cleavage then. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, ironically, uh, this is actually one of my best friend's favourite jokes, there is nothing atomically flatter in the world than cleavage. <laughs> and cleavage is uh, basically a direction of atomic weakness within the stone. So it's actually a plane where the bonds are less concentrated within a crystalline material. And basically, if there is a directional force, uh, along this plane can split perfectly pretty much perfectly, um, across to leave two flat surfaces. So not all materials can do it, but diamond is one of the few that can. And this is actually one of its uh, weak spots. It's Achilles heel, so to speak. So that's why we can break them. Uh, also, if there was big fractures in them, obviously you can break them. Uh, but they can otherwise uh, take an extremely high amount of pressure if slowly applied. Um, but yes, they do. They do have that weak spot of cleavage. So going back, so keeping on cleavage, but going back to the shape of a cut diamond, are the angles that you cut a diamond to related to the angles in the atomic structure that give you those weak planes? No, the only thing that you have to do is you can't polish on a cleavage plane because you'll lose the material. 
uh, it would just polish down too fast because you'll right. just take away layer after layer after layer. So you have to be at a two to three degree angle um, to stop this from happening. But so apart from that and cutting towards the softer directions, yeah, you have to keep it in mind. But yeah, it's possible. It sounds like a very highly skilled job, though. It's a very highly skilled job, especially when they're expected to be such particular angles for beauty. Like nowadays, um, the consumer, they're very uh, interested in the perfect stone. So triple excellent cut, as they call it, for symmetry, proportion and polish. <laughs> and that is such a hard thing for a cutter to do, to get something within, you know, a fraction of a percentage of an angle. Yeah. And so um, they spend a lot of time doing it. It's an absolute mastercraft. And it's a skill that has moved towards the east. And it is otherwise, you know, slowly going. Certainly, I've only met two, actually, in England, two diamond cutters in England that still do it. So it's great to hear that the the present of diamond is getting more ethical and that um, the the market is so kind of alive. Um, what could the future hold for diamonds? That's a very interesting question because uh, it's a very interesting question from a number of point of views because also I get so many people asking me whether diamonds are a good investment. Oh, okay. And then also being very disappointed when they learn about the difference between retail price and resale price, you know, it's, it's all going on. But basically, when it comes to the future of diamonds, there are so many things that I'm concerned with. Um, one of the biggest concerns in the current industry, which worries a lot of retailers and um, people that are more upstream within the market, are synthetic diamonds. Now, these are by no means new items. Uh, they've been made and manufactured within labs since the 50s. So 53 was the first year. And uh, it was fine back then because they were obvious and, you know, a bit crap. So basically, we didn't worry about them really until the mid 2000s. And then in 2012, when new synthetic processes came onto the market, known as chemical vapor deposition, literally just uh, the synthetic products now from both methods of HBHT and then this chemical vapor deposition, you've actually got amazing products that are completely um, difficult to detect. The differences between them. Yeah. Yeah. Because most of the time, actually, there is nothing. They're colorless, they're inclusion free. Um, if they don't fluoresce, there's nothing that you can do actually physically looking at it to be able to tell it's a synthetic unless it's been laser engraved as one um so it's very very difficult and it scares the market because actually millions of carrots are getting pumped out per year so then there's the question of okay so with the synthetics um, because they do get leaked into natural diamond packets what's going to happen there everyone has to check everything um ah oh, but do we have the time and do we have the money to buy the equipment and you know and actually it's a real fear within the market because it's such a challenge and then from a consumer point of view, they might not want a synthetic if they're paying natural prices. And I agree with them. They should get what they pay for. And uh, so there's a big question surrounding the synthetic market. The other part, uh, looking into the future on what might happen to the diamond industry, is actually the fact that the natural resource is finite. Okay. Uh, we discussed earlier whether any more new volcanic eruptions will happen soon. And the answer is de definitely not in our lifetime, maybe not for hundreds of thousands of years. You know, the last one was 20 billion years ago. 
right. 20 million years ago, sorry, like it's, it's not going to happen. So what we've got in our crust at the moment is a finite resource. And it's not every volcano that produces them. It's particularly uh, deep-rooted um, deep rooted volcanic uh, eruptions, and these are kimberlite eruptions. So this is the deepest known uh, volcanic rock that we have. Also some are lamproite. Now, these pipes, there's only, actually, it's less than 50. I want to say it's around 47 mines that are currently being mined right now. And within the next 60 years, it's predicted that all of them will be mined out. Wow. With most of them actually going within the next 25, 30 years. And we're talking the really big players. So I know in the next five years, Australia's going. So that's the Algar mine in Australia, which produces all the pinks and the reds. I say all the reds, there's like two a year. <laughs> uh, and the violets, which again are very, very rare. So all these rare colours will become even more rare once this mine runs out. You've also got one of the big mines in Russia, uh, which is known as the Jubilee Mine. And... Um, that's going to run out in the next five years. So actually, these are two really big players. And then, you know, once Botswana goes as well, these guys are producing more than half of the world's diamonds right now. Mm. And, yeah, it's actually going to be interesting what happens because that's a reality that not many people seem to know about yet. In fact, actually, I've only been aware of it for a couple of weeks. Right. Wow. Okay. When I read an article, I went, oh, I didn't realise it was that. Soon, yeah. So, in the, you know, since we found out that diamonds came from volcanoes 150 years ago, we've gone a bit mental, really. <laughs> For them, all the natural resources to run out within the next six years is actually quite scary because we're going to lose a big skill base. Because also, maybe cutting might go down and other mining uh, skills as well. So, what's going to happen then? Now, if they get to be a high enough price, natural diamonds, then maybe the smaller deposits, which are considered uneconomical to mine right now, they might be considered to be mined. Right. But otherwise, I reckon that's going to be the boom time, really, for synthetic diamonds. Because all the little diamonds that get used for accenting other gemstones and making up all these jewellery pieces, uh, for new jewellery at least, it will probably come from the synthetic market. And then the other market will, of course, be the second-hand market. Um, if people have enjoyed the episode and they would like to kind of maybe see some cool examples of diamonds or if they're really rich, get involved in the purchasing of diamonds. Um, where can people, happy to help. <laughs> where can people see some cool diamonds? Now, um, there are so many places to go. I'm actually, uh, I really suggest that people actually go into shops uh, don't be scared it can be intimidating but go and try these products on it's a lot of fun you learn what you like you learn what you don't like I actually find Harrods to be quite good at this because they're used to the footfall it's not so scary as, as walking in but otherwise you know retailers I worked just for a short time in retail we know that not to judge a book by its cover. So don't ever worry about that. Uh, in regards to other resources, I'm a big fan of going to museums. You've got really cool rocks and, and other things there. And then, of course, you've got huge online resources. Instagram at the moment, I'm absolutely loving. There are so many cool things on Instagram. And I have my own Instagram to plug myself. So I'm Gem Tripper um, and basically showing me hunting for rocks in the middle of the outback and you know any pretty thing that I see I try and share with people 
So is there anywhere else people can find you apart from Instagram? Yes, I've just recently started a vlog actually for anyone who's interested in gems. So hopefully teaching just a bit of passion and a bit more knowledge about the things that I love. And that's under the handle Gem Tripper. Amazing. Well, listeners, check it out. That sounds wicked. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that's it. Thanks for coming on Real Talk. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. So that was the wonderful Julia Griffith. Thanks so much to her for coming on the show and for sharing her passion for diamonds. I'm going to be taking a little break from Real Talk over the summer now, but don't forget you can find nearly 40 other Real Talk episodes waiting for you to enjoy in the archives at realtalk.com or wherever you normally find your podcasts. In the meantime, thanks for listening. I hope you have a lovely rest of your summer and we'll be back in a small but unspecified number of weeks with another episode of Real Talk. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.